Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Voodoo Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, uh, we have the authors of a book called The Power of Discord, Why the Ups and Downs of Relationships are the Secret to Building Intimacy, Resilience and Trust by Claudia M. Gold and Edward Tronic. Thank you guys for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So why are our relationships so damn complicated? Why are they so complicated? Yeah, why, why does it have to be this way? Why, why does there have to be tension? Part of the reason that it has to be that way, and it's a really big question, is that humans are very complicated and their fundamental way of being in the world has to do with being in relationships with other complicated beings. So you have a compounding of the complication of the individuals, the components of this system, and the fact that those components those individuals have to relate to um, one another. Um, think how complicated you might see yourself if you just picture yourself, your intentions, your motivations, everything going on in your brain, everything going on in the body, your body, and then think about coordinating all of that with another person who's just as complicated as you are. Hmm. Is this exclusive to humans, or does it um, also apply to other species? The other species just seem to mate and bolt, or they mate and stay together. Other species don't have uh, some of the cognitive, if you will, uh, capacities that we have. One of them is we're constantly reflecting on our situation. So you and I have this interaction. You ask me a question. I give you an answer at the same time I'm thinking about the answer that I'm giving. I'm reflecting also on what it is that you might have in the background of your mind. Animals, on the other hand, have problems of coordination and uh, working out their relationships, but they don't have some of the additional capacities uh, and capabilities that humans have. Hmm. So your book, The Power of Discord, does this mean the more difficult a relationship is, the better it is? May I just chime in here for Absolutely. a moment? Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would use the word difficult, but um, I, I've been having a, a conversation around the word uh, stagnate. And I think that when relationships are too smooth and easy they are vulnerable to stagnating and we are also 
Um, so, so the kind of what the term that we use in the book, messiness rather than difficulty, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, which sort of also dovetails what Ed was just saying that you have two people with separate minds, separate views of the world, separate views of themselves, and somehow they have to meet each other's motivations and intentions. And that's just inevitably going to be a messy process. Hmm. So, um, what happens when it gets stagnant? Like, like, is that why people get divorced? People drift apart because they just like I've always thought that that the tension in the relationship is more to keep it exciting, and then when it's no longer exciting, people get bored with each other, and then they start going in their separate directions or looking for somebody else to excite them. I, I think using the word exciting is really a good word. One of the excitements that we is when we discover something new, something new about ourselves, some new kind of feeling that we have. When things become completely routine, when they are the same thing time after time, day after day, they do become more. There's, there's nothing interesting. There's nothing growth promoting. There's nothing creative in relationships where, um, where there isn't change and where there isn't what we refer to the messiness. And the messiness is what makes the change possible. Hmm. So what type of messiness are we talking about? I mean, are we encouraging people to purposely create conflict in a relationship? Or are we more like asking people to acknowledge these conflicts that are there that we just ignore? Definitely the latter. <laughs> so that's the problem is that we are afraid of conflict. So and conflict is inevitable, again, because we're separate people with separate motivations and intentions. So if we try to avoid conflict, then we don't grow. But if you acknowledge conflict, then it could be, you know, very simple things, uh, you know, such as who's in what room while we're working on Zoom to you know, really more profound things such as what are our differences in terms of what we wish for our children and struggles they're going through um, and, and a whole multitude of other deeper layers of conflict um, that when we engage them and, and make our way through them to a place where we connect, that's really where the growth comes from. Hmm. And And if the style that one develops in a relationship is to avoid the conflict, then a whole broader set of issues, um, a whole broader set of experiences start to be excluded because of the concern that they may trigger movement into the conflict. So you begin to defend on a whole range of experiences, not simply the conflict that, that might be the one that you're trying to avoid. So I'm one of those people. I definitely do not like conflict. And I avoid it at all costs. And, you know, I've been married twice, divorced twice. And, and, and even with dating, I don't want to have conflict. So what I typically do to avoid conflict is I'll give the other person choices. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they can have a, feel like they have a choice rather than an argument. I, I'm surprised to hear that, given that you tell me you're from New Jersey. <laughs> 
because they see people there being pretty straightforward about what it is that they're thinking about and what what they want to uh, put on the table. But I think part of what you're saying is that there's a kind of balance and there's a kind of time quality to when it is that um, um, you're, you're able to or willing to work on some of the messiness and some of the some of the discord. Notice I'm not saying conflict in the way you are, because conflict only implies some things are negative. Mm -hmm. um, but the discord, the messiness in relationship can come out of uh, disagreements, movements about uh, what to do now. Both can be uh, good alternatives. There can be things to um, explore. But if you're really avoiding conflict, then you may not even be able to explore those choices that would be mutually satisfying were you to figure out one or the other to carry out. So how do you yeah, do that? Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say choice is, is a perfectly fine thing. I don't think giving people choices is the antithesis of, of engaging in messiness. Um, so I'm actually curious what you mean by that. I mean, because my mind immediately goes to parenting and giving kids choices is a, is a really important part of that. Mm -hmm. So what did you mean by giving choices rather than engaging in conflict? Um, like, 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 for example, what to eat for dinner, you know, rather than say, I want this or I don't want that. I'll say we can have this or we can have that. And then that way, whatever choice they win, as long as they're both choices that I'm okay with, I win. It's kind of like a, a trick that I learned doing a lot of customer service. The customer service jobs, you always give people two choices, and no matter what choice they pick, you come out on top. Yeah, and I think that that's a very good strategy. Again, we, you use that all the time in parenting because you don't I, – I think we're getting stuck on – what we mean by avoidance of conflict. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to have a battle every day with your two-year-old over what you, what they're going to eat. So that's a healthy negotiation. You, you, you can have either, you know, fish sticks or what I cooked, you know, those are your choices. So you don't want to have conflict every day with your two-year-old over what they're going to eat for dinner. So that's a healthy negotiation. Um, but but then um, so so I feel like this is a a, a different uh, type of mismatch. I, again, I, maybe I should use the word mismatch because mm -hmm. that's another word we use a lot. That there are mismatches between what your intention is and what your motive, the other one's intentions are, and those are the kinds of things where you want to try to say, well, where are you coming from exactly? Uh, or let's let's see. I'm I'm thinking on on you know on my feet here. But let's say you did that choice thing, and yet every time you went to go out to eat, you couldn't get to some place where you agreed. So then you would say, okay, so clearly there's some way in which how I'm seeing this is different from the way you're seeing this, and let's like get into that and make sense of it. So it's like a, a step beyond the you know what do we have for dinner conversation. Does that make sense? It does. Well, I think, Go ahead. 
I was going to say, I think it does make sense, but I think what you be recognizing is that your strategy of going back to your example of giving choices is actually a repair strategy. And it's built on also knowing the other person because one possibility is you say, oh, we could do this or we do this. We could have one thing or we could have another. Those are both satisfying choices for you. And you know, or you hope that the person on that you're giving those choices to will make a choice as opposed to saying, um, gee, I don't really know. I was thinking, well, what do you think? And then it comes back to you and you still don't have a clear idea of what you want. So now you're engaged in a much more complicated negotiation. The strategy you have of giving choices assumes, and it may work in a lot of situations, that the other person will make the choice. And then you've essentially put into place and anticipated a, a repair strategy of what could become, um, let's keep it at a low level, a sort of annoying interchange of, well, what, do, what movie do you want to go to? Well, I'm not really sure I want to go to that movie. Well, what about this? Uh, no, really, I, I gave you two choices at the beginning. Why don't you just choose one of those? Well, I didn't really like those. Um, what about? Um, so your strategy is actually a relational strategy. It's one that frames things and gives the possibility of repairs and also depends on how the other person is going to react to it and what they're going to do with it. So you could talk about how complicated that could become if, if the strategy breaks down. Hmm. How about apathy? Apathy is like another approach that I think I tend to use. It's probably not a healthy one, which is just to be like, well, I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever because it's the easiest way to avoid a conflict. I, I have problem agreeing that, um, you know, it's the idiot's way, uh, cause of the implication of, of that. But, um, I'll tell you what I think is wrong with that strategy or what becomes problematic. In a lot of situations, you really don't care. But there are situations where, in fact, individuals really do care about what the outcome is. And they say, I don't care. And if that, even if it's a small caring on their part, that becomes the, the strategy that, say, a couple has in terms of working things out. Oh, you decide. I don't really care. But there's always that edge of, in fact, I really did care. I really would have preferred to do X instead of Y. I really would have preferred to go to this movie than now. If that happens day after day, one of the things that gets generated is, in fact, anger and frustration with the other person. And now you have a real conflict. So the strategy can work at times when it's genuine and authentic, and it can become quite problematic if it's used over time and in a chronic kind of way that isn't really satisfying for the individual. 
Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so what are the reasons that people, like, I know I avoid the messiness because I don't like the back and forth. It's time consuming. It's draining. It gives me a headache. And then sometimes it just spirals out of control where the smallest thing, like what to have for dinner, turns into bringing up stuff that happened 15 years ago. <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, when you go down one of those tracks, what what is going on? You know, you, you say you don't like the dealing, right? But clearly the dealing is bringing up an issue about uh, a much more intense feeling than just dealing with what is it about dinner. There's something about um, the very fact that there is an agreement or that you can't coordinate that leads you to implicitly have uh, a really powerful reaction to it. Uh, And all of a sudden you're bringing up that list that 15 years ago you did this and you know now you've been doing it every day since we've been together, you always do this. I mean, I know this conversation. <laughs> How do people resolve those type of uh, that type of messages? How do they work through it? I think part of it is um, one, and and I really don't like this phrase, but I don't have another one, which is. Being in the the sort of present moment, what is the issue you're dealing with? Not what is the hidden issue that this kind of negotiation brings up for you? Um, (laughs) My my analyst, um, who I spent a lot of money on, you know, for a long-term psychoanalysis, at the end gave me what he said was the very simple rule to take into um, a lot of interactions, into relationships. And it could have saved me a fortune if I fully understood it at the time. But he referred to it as the hedgehog. And the hedgehog rule was the more intense your reaction is to something that's going on in the moment, the more it makes you want to scream and holler and bring up all sorts of other issues, the greater the likelihood that what you're screaming and yelling about has nothing to do with the issue that you're dealing with. And that's what I said to you. When you're saying, oh, I'm just going to let it go, letting it go, or I don't like the negotiation. It's the negotiate. It's not the issue anymore that's making you um, you know, frustrated and angry and going back to the past. But it's the uh, the issue that in some sense you're not fully aware of or may not be aware of at all that, that it's bringing up. One of the behaviors that I've learned with relationships, and I know it's not a healthy one. You know, I learned it as a child growing up and watching my parents interact. And my mm-hmm. parents didn't have the greatest relationship. When they fought, it was 
ugly. And my response to it was always go hide. You know, hide, mm-hmm. wait until it stops, come out when it's over. Now, too, as an adult, even when a conflict starts with my girlfriend or spouse or anybody in general, my first response is to want to run away from it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're being you're back being that five year old mm-hmm. watching having the fun, feeling out of control, feeling fearful, feeling fearful for them because of what they're doing, not understanding what's going on. And all of those feelings that that system of meaning making, the way you made meaning of it as a five year, still operating inside of you. It's still there. It's true. It's true for all of us. Yeah, and I think it brings into uh, the conversation that a lot of what we're doing is obviously we're talking in words, but the the way we, if we have these deeply embedded ways of reacting to things that come from our childhood rather than what's happening right now, that the way to shift out of those states is not necessarily in words. You know, it's things like going for a walk or listening to music or somehow getting our body to feel more organized because we are triggered by that to become suddenly five years old. Um, and you don't want to behave like a five-year-old. You want to be able to have a reasonable conversation, but sometimes that's just not accessible to us because this situation, understandably, if you've lived through years and years of, uh, you know, scary conflict between your parents, that's, that's very much alive, as Ed said. And, and so it has to be a more, a bodily response, something you do to calm your body before you can have access to higher level thinking. So in that case, is it an appropriate response to walk away from the situation temporarily, wait for the body chemicals to resume normal, and then come back to the situation? Well, but the thing is that they don't just come back to normal on their own. You know, it requires some sort of action. And of course, walking away from someone can be interpreted as a, a rejection. So it seems like this is something that would require explicit collaboration. You know, this is difficult for me. I need to go walk around the block three times before I can talk to you again. Um, rather than I'm just going to go away from you. And when I feel better, I'll come back, which, which, so those are sort of two variations on the same behavior, but can carry different kinds of meaning and communication. One of the things we, we talk about in the, in the book is the research that, that I did on the still face paradigm. And it really captures that walking away in some sense. And in the paradigm, I know you know it, but uh, maybe some of the readers don't or listeners don't, which is it's an interaction between a mother and an infant, three-year-old, uh, three-month-old. It could be a three-year-old. And what we ask the mother to do is to engage and play with, with the child and then to stop react, just not react at all and sit in front of, stay in front of the child. And the child's reaction is an attempt to get the parent to again re-engage in the interaction. So you could think about 
what could happen if we use that as a model, because it's a really powerful the still face, if you suddenly just get up and walk away. Now the person has no idea what it is that's going on. So what Claudia says about it's not just a matter of taking the break, it's how you put that break into place and then also what you do while you're on the break. I mean, people can walk away from, you know, a conflicted interaction or a messy interaction or a problematic interaction and then just stew on the issue and come back even more furious than they were before they took the break. Because what they do is they self, they go over the situation again and again and again, and the insults and the annoyance increases uh, rather than it calming them down by taking a break from the interaction. Hmm. So can you give me an example of a healthy way of dealing with the messy conflict? Or, or um, just messiness. I know the forget the word. Not using the word conflict. You, you, yeah. <laughs> it's just I'm so used to you know, and again, like that goes back to like the way I was raised and seeing my parents like go boom, you know, and just explode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I think that that's a very powerful experience. Obviously, you're you're, you know, you're sharing it with us. <laughs> that that's lives in in you, and and I think many of us have had that experience to varying degrees, or things that happen to us as kids that live in our body that cause us to have that hedgehog response, um, that it's not about what you're, what's going on. So, you know, I think um, it's a, it, the thing that pops into my mind is one of our colleague Bruce Perry's uh, motto, regulate, relate, reason. So if you think of the brain in a very simple way that our, you know, basic regulatory capacities are in the bottom. And then as we develop and grow our, we can regulate our emotions better. And then as we continue to mature, we can start to use our thinking brains. So when you're in the middle of a difficult conflict, you have to first breathe. You have to think, okay, I got to just get the bottom part of the brain working. Um, and that's where the things like going for a walk or, or you, you have to be in a regulated physiologic state in order to be able to be in relationship with another person. Um, so whatever it takes to get yourself into that re- regulated state and then begin to have and ex- anticipate, you know, you said it takes a long time. Yes, it does. When you have two people who are coming at a situation from very different perspectives, it's not something you can fix in five minutes. And to take that time uh, where each of them, each of you in the mess can feel safe to be able to begin to relate and and be curious about what the other person's perspective is and only when you've gotten there where you're calm enough to be in relation can you have a reasonable conversation in words about whatever it is that happened and generally I, we were listening to a podcast or together about this kid who got accept, upset about going to the airport. It's not about the thing. And I, in my first book, the first chapter is called, it's not about the soup. 
um, where there's a kid who has a total meltdown about what they're going to eat for dinner. And it's, it's not about that. But until you can get to what you have to first go through that upside down triangle to get to what is it really about? And how do you Does do, that make sense? Yeah, but how do you do that? Like, I, I, I'm first one to admit, I have, like, there's certain things like I understand about myself. And I know why I respond to them in certain ways. There's other things about myself that I am completely clueless. And I'm talking after 40 years of therapy and all kinds of stuff and, and doing podcasts and talking to hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'm still completely clueless. <laughs> about why I react to certain things the way I do. <laughs> but I, th I think what Claudia and what, our, what Bruce Perry may be suggesting is while it can really help you to know what it is like your parents fighting, mm -hmm. you know, um, why your child is so upset about the soup because the teacher yelled at him in class or something like that. Well, it's good to know those reasons. It's also possible in the face of not knowing to engage in ways of regulating yourself, taking control of yourself, such that you don't let those unknown triggers operate on you. And you probably have a lot of clues about that. You're saying to me, um, I know there are a whole bunch of things that occur that I don't know why they light me up so much, but they do occur. Well, maybe you'll never know the reason for those things, but you can know when it's happening. Yeah. You can say something, you know, something as simple um, as I had an exchange with, with my wife probably the day before yesterday, where I said, we, we were talking about an appointment that we were trying to make. Um, and it, um, and I just felt myself, you know, really being annoyed. And I said, it was sort of the walk away strategy. But what I said was, I don't know why this is making me so upset, but it is. So let's put it aside a little bit and we'll come back. So I couldn't deal with, you know, Claudia's soup for this little boy. I couldn't deal with the appointment. I still have, I'm telling you, I, maybe you know, I still have no idea why it was such a problem, right? But one thing did not happen. We did not get into a big fight and a big argument about it. And I'd like to take credit for that because the strategy I took was I'm getting upset. Why am I so upset about, you know, making this appointment or adjusting this appointment? Um, I have no idea. I still have no, but there was a way to, to do with it, you know, to deal with it. Yeah. And, Right. I think the story you, you tell is, is really, not you, Ed, but uh, about being in therapy for so many years and still not really knowing. I mean, it's, it's really poignant and gets to the heart of what we're saying, which is that it, just knowing the story in words is not sufficient to change the way you react to things. 
Um, and so that has a lot of implications for how do we change? Mm-hmm. And so we change not only by having this cognitive understanding, I had this trauma, X, Y, Z happened to me. I've also been in therapy for many, many years. And, and I was in what I told Ed is the math problem version of therapy, which is so X plus Y happened that led to Z. And that's why I am the way I am. Well, that just doesn't work when you're in the moment. Now, what was it again that happened? And why am I like that? You know, you've got to be able to be in the moment. And like Ed said, you've got to be able to calm yourself down without having an intellectual in words understanding of what's going on. And so how do you get to that? And I think it's uh, the lesson is from from babies. You get to it by making new meanings in your body in many, many different kinds of relationships. So whether it's that you do martial arts or you do photography or you do podcasting or you you know you do all these different things where you're in relation with lots of other people that help you to have that ability to do what ed described which is to say wait this isn't feeling good to me i i need not to get into this it's not about the appointment hmm. does that make sense mm-hmm. one of the things that that too you know like when i get in that flight or fight mode you know, where it's either I want to run or fight. Um, I don't know what it is, but for me anyway, it takes a long time for that physical reaction to go away. I mean, sometimes it could take an entire day just to get rid of that feeling. And then like once it's gone, then I can think normally and I can express myself normally and it makes sense, you know, at least communicate and try to resolve an issue. But when I'm in that state, it's very hard for me to find the correct words that are going to be productive. One of the things, a couple of things about that. One of the advantages of studying infants and looking at infant development and how relationships get structured is that infants and even really very young children um, pretty much, you know, don't have the use of language. The meanings that they're making are really all physiologic meanings. They're all a combination of brain and physiology. They don't have words attached to them. They don't have symbols attached to them. So the reaction that you have in that situation that gets triggered that can even take you a day to recover is, is a quality of the regulatory systems, those brain body systems that were um, formed by early experiences. And in a way we do not have access to them in any symbolic kind of way. We know them because we experience them but we don't necessarily know the basis of it. So when you were two years old, if I forgive me, you know, but when you were two years old and your parents were fighting, you didn't even have words for the fight. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of experience about the fight. And if it happened a lot, there's a lot of tr- setting up of those physiologic brain systems that are going to keep operating for you even into adulthood. After a while, they get, you know, they run in particular patterns and they get, um, they get structured 
And so you have that physiologic reaction that takes you a whole day um, and and it takes you a whole day to get a hold of to take take hold of yeah yeah it drives me crazy yeah and and it's where you have to do those active things that Claudia talks about I think have to do with calming down that system even though you don't know the reasons and not knowing the reasons of course means that you feel a little stressed just by the fact that you don't know. But I think there's another problem with the fight flight model. Um, I think it's a very powerful and very useful model, but it leaves out a particular piece. It leaves out a third alternative, which is certainly for children, but I think for adults as well. The third alternative is to go to someone else who will make you feel secure and calm and safe. And so when we get into a flight fight reaction and don't have the alternative of getting close to another person, very much like a child who's frightened who's just had a little bit of an accident, they've hurt themselves. And the parent, think about this, the parent kisses the wound, kisses the boo-boo, and the child feels better. And the pain goes away. But we know the kiss, in some medical sense, isn't, you know, isn't like an anesthetic. But what's happened is that the parent by doing that, is saying to the child, is conveying to the child, you're safe, I'll take care of you, it's not going to happen again, you will be okay. But if the only alternatives you feel, and I'd be interested, Claudia, what you think about this, but if the only alternative you feel is to fight, not necessarily a good one, or to run away, but you can't go to that other person whom you're engaged with. Now you have another reason to be angry because that person is not going to satisfy your needs, feel safe and taken care of. Whereas if you can go to that person, if you can say, oh, let's just stop this. Give me a hug. Hold on to me. Let me calm down. Help me to calm down. If you can go to that person, you're not going to fight and you're not going to. Mm. Um, well, this this conversation brings to mind another one of our colleagues, uh, Steve Porges, because, I mean, typically when you're in that kind of situation as an adult, there isn't someone like mm-hmm. a parent to run to. I mean, the yeah. problem the problem was the parent. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think what often happens, and this is this may be what's going on in that in that day long difficult time, um, is that if we we have that third level, which is to uh, what in common parlance is referred to as dissociate, like we just feel this sense of not ourselves, and that, and that's a really really terrible feeling to have. Like you just lose who you are, um, and. Uh, you know, and then 
um, which is when you are feeling like just completely overwhelmed and you don't have either the option to fight or to flight, uh, to, to run away. Um, and yes, it makes seeing that happen to yourself, uh, is, is this kind of the first step in not having it happen to yourself. Like I am losing my sense of myself. And a, another reason for the benefit of messiness in, in early development is that that's where our sense of self comes from as we navigate these difficult moments and we repair them so that when we haven't had that over and over again and something happens, we can very easily lose that sense of ourself, which is really disturbing so again how do you get that sense of yourself you have to get back into your physical body that's where it all has to be in ways to to move to to experience to to sort of reintegrate yourself and yes that takes time but the first step in it is saying oh i see this is happening to me i am losing myself in this moment and i don't like this feeling mm-hmm how about if the other person is not patient enough to wait for you to go through this process? I mean, I think that was definitely a big case in my last marriage where the other person was not patient with me having to go through that process all the time. One of the things we, we see in the infant work, um, in the research, is that in the still face, when, when the mother holds the still face, the infant really infant upset. They try to reinstitute the interaction. They try to figure out what's going on. And then following the still face, we have a, a, another episode in which the mother resumes the normal interaction. And what we see most typically is that initially the infant may still be angry and reactive to the, what the mother was doing during the still face, but very quickly they repair, they overcome that negative feeling that they've had. Now, earlier you asked about typical interaction. For the infant or an infant parent interaction, what we see is that while, while we romanticize the interaction and we think it's really smooth and wonderful. And look at that great interaction between that mother and that baby, all the cooing that's going on. When you look at it carefully, um, what we do is we videotape interactions and we do slow motion analysis and we watch what's going on really carefully. What we see is that there's a process in which, of course, there's a matching when Mother and infant are looking at each other, they're smiling at each other, but very quickly, in a matter of typical, in a few seconds, that match, as we call it, comes apart and the infant looks off to the side, the mother is no longer smiling, and there's a mismatch. They're not sort of not dance, quite dancing together. They've had a misstep between. And then when they come back together again, they have a match. So there's a match, a mismatch, and then a repair. And those mismatches occur, oddly enough, about 70% of the time. So even in what we consider really good mother-infant, parent-infant interaction, 
most of the time there's a kind of dyssynchrony going on between them. And that's where the repair comes in. The repair takes the mismatch and puts it back together again. And then that match breaks apart. And then there's another one. That's also the way adults interact with one another. Adults in conversation go back and forth. They miss cues. They don't hear a particular word. But one of the benefits of having that experience of matches, going to mismatches, back to matches again, is that when you have a match, it has a positive emotion experienced with it. When you have a mismatch, there's a kind of stress. It's not a big stress, but there's a stress, kind of negative emotion. And then you get a repair and you're back to a positive. Infants and mothers who have lots of experience with repairs with one another, when it comes to overcoming the effects of the still face, really get back together again very quickly. Infants and mothers who have problematic repair histories, where they fail to be able to repair the interaction, have real problems overcoming the stress of the still face. So when you're with another person, if as a child, and it sounds like your experience wasn't like it, if as a child in your interactions with your parents or watching your interactions with your parents, you didn't experience a whole lot of repairs. What you experienced were a whole lot of mismatches. Um, you know, um, it makes me think that we all have the experience with adolescence where it's really hard to find a match with them. It's really, you know, they don't want to talk, they don't want to deal with it, whatever. They can become really problematic. It's not always the case. But children and adults who have experience with repairing mismatches are able to deal with the stress of disagreements. But individuals who have not had that experience, who have not had the experience of negative emotion being capable of changing to positive emotions, have what I call stickiness. They get stuck in the negative emotion. They don't believe, they don't have the hopefulness that they can repair the interaction with this person. So the slightest disagreement for them triggers a feeling of this isn't going to work. I can't, I feel hopeless. I'm going to have negative emotion and I'm going to be stuck in that feeling no matter what I do. Can that be overcome? Well, yes. Um, I mean, I, I think I want to, I want to circle back to your question. Obviously I don't know anything about your ex-wife. Uh, or how the two of you dealt with those situations. Um, but what we learn, you know, from infants is that, yes, or, or you know, working with children is that these, if these were your early experiences, it can change where you can have more 
of a sense of hope. And but it, but the way you get it is through having all these mismatch and repair with other people. So here you have a partner as an adult. And if you can get to a place where you and that other person can be uh, curious in seeing each other's perspective, that is exactly the thing that will begin to change your own meanings as an adult of yourself in the world. So you just need to sort of collect lots of people around you in different ways where you do go through that mismatch to repair. So again, I don't know the circumstances of your situation, but in some using that as a sort of prototype, <laughs> the other person also has their own history and the repair would come if you could get to a point where you can explain what's happening for you and they can explain what's happening for them. And then somehow you get to some place of meeting where you figure out together, okay, this is tough for both of us and how are we going to get through it? Hmm. And, and the other person may not have the patients may not have the experience um, in their past to give you the space that you need or to work on the issues in effective kinds of ways. Or it could be that in the present, the two of you together cannot figure out how it is to develop ways of overcoming the mismatches that you typically experience. Um, an example of that is um, what I call the cocktail party effect. Cocktail party effect is you meet someone um, at a cocktail party, you get introduced, and we all have the standard, oh, what do you do, where are you from, set of questions. Mm -hmm. If when you first meet someone, you have that sort of social um, scaffolding that both of you know you're going to both go through. What do you do? What do you want? Whatever. But if you go through that and don't find something else to talk about, oh, you're into sports or you're into, oh, you just took a trip. Tell me about that. If you don't find something else to talk about, Right. If you don't find something to share meaning about, to work on together, you know, what do we both, what does one of the parties say? Oh, I think I'll get a drink. And then they go and they get a drink and they don't come back. Um, look at infants interacting with strangers. This is six month old. Infants give a big greeting to the stranger often a bigger greeting than to the stranger than they do to their own parent. And for a long time as researchers, we thought infants actually uh, can't tell the difference between strangers and their parents because they give such big greetings to the stranger. But if you let the interaction between the stranger and the infant go along, and if the stranger and the infant don't find something to do together, a game, a clapping game, a peek-a-boo game, or something like that. What happens is the infant starts looking away, 
turns off and no longer interacts with the stranger. Whereas the parent and the infant find little things to do together and they keep on interacting. So that kind of process has to be on both sides, both sides of the equation. Both individuals have to bring the capacity to work on the mismatches to the situation. So are you saying that having something in common or, or a shared goal or something that's done together between the two people is what will help the relationship? I think that's a, a more, uh, I think it's, a, it's deeper than that. Um, and I'm laughing about the cocktail party because my husband is so good at cocktail parties because <laughs> he will be interested in the other person, even if all they do is talk about themselves, which is often what happens. It's very rare that people meet each other and are actually interested in each other. Because, I mean, this is a little cynical, but I think many people are just interested in themselves. But my husband will stick with someone and say, so tell me about that. And we're, even if for an hour and a half, the person never says anything to him about, so what are you interested in? <laughs> so it's not just sharing common interests, but it's being curious about what is going on in the mind of the other person that helps people to trust each other and to connect with each other. Interesting, because I'm the same way. I will very rarely actually even have to talk about myself. But if, if I can find somebody who's going to go on an hour-long rant, and I just got to sit there and I can just sit there and listen and be entertained by it, I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what Claudia is pointing out about her husband is that he's authentically interested, uh -huh. curious about it. He does want to know whatever his, you know, bigger or smaller purposes. He, he, he's authentic for when you're with someone and they're talking about themselves and you really don't care. Uh -huh. They also, you don't care. Um, and you don't care and you don't want to be there. They don't want to be there. And there's no connection being made. There's no, there's no sharing of the curiosity. There's no saying, Oh, I'm really interested. And the other person really experiences that you are interested in, in being there with them and hearing about it. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning, you asked, a question, do you, are there other situations where you want to provoke discord? We use the word conflict. Um, one area where you, where it actually can work, and I think this has a spillover into regular relationship, is in the therapeutic situation. In the clinical situation, therapists never ever always meets your expectation of how wonderful they're going to be. There's always a match, a mismatch, and a discord that's going on. But what the therapist does and what you do with the therapist is you begin to repair those mismatches. 
you begin to believe that you with this other person can deal with negative and problematic emotions and feelings with discord and still work together. And that's a real essence of therapy. That's where the therapeutic relationship gets stronger and stronger. And when it occurs, it means that you can deal with harder and harder issues, more difficult issues with that person, that you really trust that person, that therapist, to stay with you and to be with you and to be able to mismatch, to repair that mismatch. You know, in my therapy, the number of times that I was frustrated and angry with my therapist, who, you know, I adore, right? But there were times the adoration was just anger and fury. And the fact that we could work through those really big emotions was built on working through the smaller emotions and the smaller mismatches that occurred. But of course, the problem for therapy is that the person who's in therapy has to find relationships in, quote unquote, the real world, where the repairs work, the mismatches get overcome. And the problem, of course, that they face is that in their old relationships, you've set up patterns which aren't effective, which don't really work. And now you have, as the, the person in therapy, you now have to work on relationships, your real relationship, to get them to change. Or they don't change, and you have to find new relationships. Are some people just incapable of having, you know, relationships with people? They're just, you know, they're not able to do it? Yeah. We had a president who couldn't have relationships with people. Was Except Jimmy Carter? Hmm? Mm, that's not who I was thinking. <laughs> I won't say who it was. <laughs> Gerald Ford. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, I, I, I think there are some people who are like, I, I think of a couple of people in my community who are dog trainers. Mm -hmm. Fabulous, fabulous with dogs. And, and those are their closest relationships. Um, and they, you know, I don't think they would say I have trouble with humans, but they have chosen to live their life having their main relationships with, with animals, um, which is fine if it's, you know, and not to say that they don't have relationships with humans, um, but I think sometimes experiences early in life have been so difficult or well, for whatever reasons, whenever in life, that, that it is just too hard. I do think that is possible. Um, but I, I, it, that I would say um, it's, uh, I would hope that if that were the situation, that there would be things like animals that could fill that space that people have difficulty with with humans. Mm -hmm. like, like, I know with me personally, like, like friendships, I'm fine with. I mean, I'm still friends with people that I went to freaking kindergarten with. You know, like mm -hmm. I have 
No problem with friendships. When it comes to romantic partnerships, living together, that's where it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Living together is not easy. There's, just think about all the moments that you're present and together. And if 70% of good relationships have mismatches and have stressors in them, not big stressors, just these little ones, right? What is it like um, to be with someone Hours, you know, all of the time, all of the possibility. I think one of the problems that children, well, I think adults and children have had during this period of time of COVID is the phenomenon that we are together with people who we love, but we're together with them far more, with much more time together than we ever typically experience. We're locked down. We're in the same house. There's a lot of stress outside of us, out in the world, and the stress is playing out on us while we're together. So it's already a stressful situation. And now you have to negotiate, where will you be? What will you be doing? Um, is it okay that we're sitting in the room and we're not talking with one another? For the, for COVID, I think the worst, the, the most difficult, its greatest difficulty were for children who were eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, those preteens and teens who one have very little desire in some ways to be with their parents. Now they have to be with their parents the whole time instead of being with their friends. And with their friends, what are they doing all the time? They're matching, they're mismatching, they're laughing, they're experiencing stress, they're repairing the interaction, they're figuring out what their future is like. Whereas with your parents, to be with them when you're 11 years old all the time and you're not on some kind of wonderful, privileged vacation, is to be with someone, what are you going to talk with? You don't have any shared interests with them. They're just there to make sure you don't do the wrong thing. Did you do your homework? Did you take care of this? The child already anticipates the problem. I think, I think the isolation that children felt during COVID is, is really a problem, but it brings home your question, like, in romantic relationships where there's really intense feelings, how do you negotiate those feelings? Exactly. How do you negotiate them? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think one fantasy, and we talk about this in the book, one fantasy that we... I think we all have, or one assumption that we have, is, um, and it relates to something you said earlier, is that the relationship should be smooth and perfect and perfect. That we should all be dancing the way Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers danced. 
But the only way they danced together with that kind of coordination was that they rehearsed and they rehearsed and they rehearsed. And eventually they took out all of the mismatches. There are no mismatches in their dances. But think how we all dance together, or at least most of us, right? We're coordinated a little period of time, then we get out of sync with the music or out of sync with our partners, we step on each other's toes, we apologize, right, negative feelings, and then we get back together and for 12 seconds, right, we're in time with the music, feeling really great, and then we mismatch again. Nonetheless, when we have romantic relationships, we think, oh, it should be conflict-free, there shouldn't be any discord, there shouldn't be any mismatches. And remember at the beginning of the relationship, when you're totally enthralled with that other person, for however long, it's a fabulous part of it, right? It's as if you're reading each other's minds, right? You know what the other person wants before they do it. They know what you want before they do it. One is, I'm not sure that's really happening, although certainly we we experience it in those relationships. But after a while, it starts to come apart. And now it's what, you know, it's what all our grandmothers said to us, which is you have to work at. And the work involves taking those that discord and those mismatches and figuring out how not to be stepping on each other's toes, how to get back to that good feeling, and also how to deal with just the mundane of being together, the sort of typical, everyday, ongoing kinds of things that don't have any particular kind of excitement attached to them. So the relationship feels like it starts out with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, or you being them. But after a while, it changes into how do we dance together? How do we figure out how to be messy and overcome the discords and feel connected and hopeful with one another? And when we do that well, one of the things that grows in the relationship is you come to know that with that other person, you can overcome more significant and severe breaks in the relationship because there will be an an inevitable break, you know, some real fight. Okay, are we going to go see your parents who hate me and spend two weeks with them on a vacation? I am not going to do that. But they're my parents. We have to do that. And it becomes not a one-day thing. It becomes a two-day thing. And it becomes a three-day thing. But if you have a history in which you've been able to repair small and big problems, discord, what you call conflict, which we could call conflict, those kind of conflicts, what you bring to the fight And that working out with that partner is 
the belief and the faith that we will work this out so that you never threaten the relationship. You may have a terrible fight, but it doesn't raise the issue of we won't be able to put this back together again. But what happens in divorce and breakup of situation is that those fights occur and one or the other or both don't believe you can put it together. And so there's no point in trying to resolve it because you won't, even if you could resolve the issue, you you won't be able to resolve the future ones. This leads me to, you know, a question that I often ask myself and that is maybe human beings are not meant to be monogamous. Maybe we are meant to have, you know, like I play, like, you know, I play guitar, you saw my guitars in the back, you know, maybe we're meant to have a, a, a different person in every town. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, rather than being with the same person our entire life, maybe that is a social rule that was created by churches and governments to control human beings. So you wonder why you got divorced? Yeah. How do you think someone feels when on the table is the issue of we're always a constant issue is I'm not going to be here. I don't know. I mean, Humans are sort of nomadic to begin with. So I, I just wonder, though, so, so, so you think monogamy is a, 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 a real human thing, that, that humans are supposed to be monogamous? I'm not touching that issue. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Claudia? Well, I, I'm going to go with, with Ed's reaction. You know, like we want to trust another person, that they're going to be there for us. Mm -hmm. And... Right from the get-go, that's not a given. I, I, it's hard to really invest the kind of emotional energy in that it takes to be in a relationship over time. So, so it's better to trust one person and trust multiple people. At least, if you, like if you trust multiple people, you always have a backup plan. Well, okay, let so me I'm pick up. I, I think I think Claudia makes a really telling point. One of the things that happens one can think about in monogamous relationships is that there's an intensity of connection that's fostered, that's scaffolded by the mutual commitment and agreement that there will, there are only certain kinds of things. There are certain things that I will only share with you that I will not bring to other person. And then I trust that to come, and it leads to a, a particular kind of intimacy. Bruno Bettelheim, who we know from the current concerns about, um, you know, spectrum disorders, um, but putting aside that, he, he studied, you know, he was a psychoanalyst um, and a theorist. And he looked at relationships in the Israeli kibbutz, the communal living situations that were taking place. This is probably during 
the 40s and 50s when this movement was really strong. And one of the things that was there was that while there were couples and there were monogamy, people had daily and very intense interactions and relationships with a lot of people. And one of the things he said as an observation was that the individuals who were in the kibbutz, who lived that communal way of life, had very positive relationships, that they had a lot of capacity for relationships, but they did not have the same kind of intimacy in their married relationships as he saw in monogamous situations, family situations mm -hmm. that we would see in the U.S., where people were intensely together all the time and had fewer relationships, fewer intense, friendly, intimate relationships with a lot of other people. He was vilified for that perspective because it sounded like he was saying that the people who lived in the kibbutz were shallow. But it, that wasn't his point. His point was that the way you structure not just the monogamous relationship, but the way you structure all of your relationships has an effect on the kinds of intimacy and kinds of trust that you have in the other person. So perhaps, and I don't know this, there was less monogamy in the kibbutz relationship. Maybe there was or wasn't, but his view, his, his insight, and I think it was an important one, was um, that those relationships were less intense, less, and they were less fraught than the relationships he was seeing in the U.S. So to um, me, that sounds good. Well, it may be good, but it's a value, mm -hmm. right? It's not saying biologically we are this way. It's saying I, you know, the people who formed the kibbutz were people who consciously said we need different kinds of relationships between one another and between ourselves and work. It was a conscious community that they set up, right? You know, we've drifted into whatever kind of relationships we have, but really we make conscious decision. And, you know, now we see relationships um, of people, you know, leaving their regular job, forming communities that are consciously trying to have different kinds of relationships. You know, an example that comes out of parenting is parents who want to sleep with their, with their young children and continue to sleep with their young children because it makes their value is they believe this will make them be closer with their children. And then there are other people who say, Oh no, no, I want my child to be in another room. I want my child to be able to take care of themselves. I want to be able to come together with them and share certain things. But the person I really want to share things with is my spouse. One place we're going to be together is when we sleep together. Mm -hmm. They're value judgments. 
The human species can do a lot of things. Yeah, I, I want to just... Variety. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, you're freezing, Ed. There you are. Okay, you're kind of going in and out a little. There. Um, I just want to call attention to the the word intimacy, which is in our the subtitle of our book, because I think that's kind of a, what we're talking about is perhaps investing in navigating the messiness leads to intimacy and having more relationships where you don't have that likely will have a lesser degree of intimacy. Now, I, I also find my mind going to, you know, we, things are changing very rapidly in our culture. And I actually know a couple of people who are in uh, polyamorous relationships. So it's either three women or two women and a man, and they have tremendous intimacy in those relationships, even though it's not just a one-on-one -on -one pair. But I do think that um, if, if what you're asking us is not should people be, um, is, is it okay to be in many different relationships, but what do you need if you want to be in an intimate relationship? And I think if you want to be in an intimate relationship, whether you want to be with two people or six people, you have to be willing to invest in that moment to moment messiness in a, in a very deep way. Otherwise you just won't have that intimacy with the other person. And if that's the choice you make that you don't need or want intimacy, that's, you know, that's a choice, but, but it doesn't, you can't have the intimacy without so, the mess. So what exactly is intimacy? How, how is that defined? Is that defined as sex or is that, well, what is intimacy? Uh, well, that's okay. Here <laughs> we use the book in our, I don't think it's just sex. I mean, I think sex is one way to be intimate with another person. I mean, I think you can have an intimate relationship with someone that doesn't have sex in it. It's it's a kind of profound connection and knowing of another person, I would say. See, I, I just, I, I still question monogamy because you can't get everything you need from one person. No. Because, you know, you might have this person over here Great cook. That's where you want to go eat. This person over here, best sex ever. That's where you want to go get the sex. This person over here, super funny and smart. That's the person you want to hang out with and go out to dinner with. But to get all that wrapped up into one person is impossible. And I think that's why people cheat. Mm -hmm. Right, but you're seeing them cheating as only in terms of sex. But Another way to think about it is that the friend that you have that you, you know, have drinks with and the friend that you have discussions about work and the friend that you just laugh with or whatever, if you want to put it that way, they're all cheating on some, some aspect of the relationship with all of them. You do this with this one, this with that one. You don't, you don't bring that piece to that other person. So I think the problem with the way one uses the word cheating is it's saying, oh, cheating only has to do with sex. But the phenomenon is that relationships have many dimensions. 
And those dimensions can be satisfied with different people. And I think there's, in some sense, uh, perhaps somewhat of a mystery around intimacy in that it comes most likely with only a few people. And for some people, maybe not at all. But I think for most of us, we feel intimate with a few people, but not, and, and then we have friends, good friends, friend people we want to see, but it, it lacks a particular thing. Um, but even our most intimate relationships, just what you said, don't cover everything. Um, so we but have, that so does that mean, mean we have that to doesn't do mean, it now? That doesn't like, mean do? you're restricted to only that relationship. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Again, but right back to the very beginning. This is the most complicated topic of all time. <laughs> there really is no single one-all answer to mm-hmm. having good relationships, in my opinion. You know, there, there's tools, I think, that we can use, like communication. Mm-hmm. Um, but even communication, I think, is limited. Well, I, I think... You know, again, the, the advantage for me in studying infants and young children and interaction is, um, that their communication has to be in some kind of expressive behavior, something to look at, but we still don't fully understand the process. So when we talk about messiness interactions in interaction, and we talk about repairs. Um, what we're, in essence, what we're saying is that communication, however that occurs, always has messiness about it. That the communication, the communicating of whatever it is that you want to communicate with that other person is never going to be perfect. And what you have to try to do is try and work together to develop shared meanings about what's going on. And that's a messy process of matching, mismatching, repairs back and forth. It's what, it's what's happened, hopefully, in the conversation that we're having. We say something, we disagree, we go back and forth. Can we come to an agreement about, can we come to a shared meaning? And then when, even when we come to that shared meaning, we can recognize that there are parts of it and edges of it that will come up that indicate that we don't fully understand what it is when we use that term. We just had that example with intimacy. We all feel like we have some idea about what intimacy is about, but very quickly we could see, well, it has different aspects and there's would be a much longer discussion. And even at the end of that discussion, we would still be repairing and it'd still be a bit messy and we still wouldn't be able to quite figure it out. Well, that is what communication is about, but it also has this second level 
which is we will keep trying to figure it out. We will keep working on it to see if even in the face of that example I gave before, you have that really big fight about visiting your in-laws. While you're in that fight, communication is really a problem and you're struggling to communicate, but you also both share the idea that we will be able to resolve this and move on. We will not threaten that intimacy that we have in our relationship. We won't threaten the relationship. And that's a piece of the intimacy, that confidence, that absolute knowing that we won't, we won't come apart no matter how much trouble we have trying to communicate our intentions and our meaning with them. To me, it sounds like defining intimacy is like trying to define God. It's impossible. In a way, chasing intimacy and chasing God are both like chasing a ghost. Well, Aristotle and Plato talked about it in terms of justice, right? Mm -hmm. We, you know, one of the things we've recognized, actually, this may be a, a useful example. One of the things that we've recognized now in terms of movements like uh, Black Lives Matter and the problems that we're seeing around racism and the severity of is that probably, I don't know this to be true, a hundred years ago, people could say, while we can't define justice, we know what it is. One of the things that's happening now in the context of it's like uh, racism and anti-racism is that it's really questioning what is justice in certain situations. We can't simply say, oh, we all know what justice is, even though we can't define it. Well, we're now confronting situations where it is not so obvious as to what justice is. And Claudia's example of, you know, poly, polyamorous relationships raises questions about, okay, we all sort of know what intimacy is. And now we see relationships where we have to say, okay, what is intimacy in those relationships? What does it mean there? It certainly doesn't mean the same thing it did or does between, you know, people who are in a singular coupled relationship. And what about the people, you know, what was intimacy like for the people who lived in the kibbutz? I'm willing to, I believe they all had some kind of intimacy, but what was it like? Um, you know, the more we see variety after, the more we see mismatches to our own kind of thinking, the more challenge we have in trying to create a meaningful sense of what it is that the, you know, how the world looks to us. And that's become more and more of a challenge. Hmm. You know, it makes me think, um, you know, you know, like how, a, what if intimacy doesn't exist? What if it's just an ideal that we've made up in our minds? It, it's not real. 
You know, like the same way like an a, uh, atheist would think of God, that, that, that people just made it up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to just root us in infancy again. You know, I'm think, I find myself thinking about uh, the work of Winnicott, who's a pediatrician and psychoanalyst, and wrote a lot about the capacity to be alone and how the capacity to be alone is grows out of the capacity to be alone together. So I don't know what intimacy is in adults, but I think in development, intimacy is an ability to be completely yourself with another person. Um, and then that is comes through, you know, that, that first relationship between a, a parent and an infant as the, pa- the parent helps the child to be seen in ways that um, are changing as the child's sense of themselves is changing and that the child can then be comfortably in themselves with another person. And so I think of my own young adult children and how I would hope for them, even though I don't know exactly the definition of intimacy, I would hope for them to be able to be in intimate relationships as adults. And I see their capacity to be intimate as emerging out of our ability when I was, they were infants. Uh, I mean, I'll always be their mother. And, and we were just alone together. Um, and they, they formed that sense of themselves as being able to be themselves in relation to another person. Interesting. So before we wrap this up, I want to thank you guys for coming on. Um, and where is the best place for my listeners to find you guys and find your book? Um, well, okay, I'll start. We, we have two websites. There's the there's a website that's uh, thepowerofdiscord.com, which is information about our book and both of us. I also have my own website, which is claudiamgoldmd.com, and I write a blog every uh, couple of weeks, and you can subscribe to that through my website. And um, I don't have very much of a presence in the uh, current social media realm. Um, I have a a position at the University of Massachusetts um, that has a website for me or another way is uh, for people to uh, just Google, Google my name and there are are a bunch of videos out there, um, including the the still face video uh, and uh, a number of examples of it. Interesting. Well, thank you guys for being on. I will post the links to those websites in the video and in notes of this episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. This is sort of like an out-of-the-ordinary type of video for me, so this is sort of not exactly my um, specialty. (laughs) But uh, it was a pleasure talking with you guys, and uh, thanks for being patient with me. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It was really interesting. I think in part because of uh, the connection, if you will, um, and and your willingness to um, talk about your own situation. I think I think that's so much a key of being able to bring authentic ways of being with other people, even if it's you know limited by an hour and a half and so on, Zoom and whatever that all means, uh, but. Talking about that, I think, uh, is something uh, 
that's to be valued and really special. Thank you. Thanks. Well, thank both of you. And just hang on for one moment. I'm just going to play the outro.